0: Have you ever gone to a good movie? I mean, when I'm talking about a good movie, I mean it is an action movie. Stuff will be blowing up, the storyline is dumb, but the action is great. The special effects are awesome. I mean, the characters are just incredible. Yeah, their muscles are CGI, but I mean, when you are watching the film, it just seems like you are there. I mean, you've got the surround sound going. It's just bumping. All of your body is like vibrating. You're not even in a vibrating chair. You're just like, this is what I'm talking about. This is awesome. My wife, I can tell she loves me. There's many ways that she shows it, but last week she especially showed that she loved me. You say, why? Because she went downstairs to the ticket counter and said, we need tickets to the new Star Wars film opening night and we want to go in the 3D XD. We want the full surround sound experience. And she surprised me, those tickets. I'm telling you, that's a woman of God right there. All right, okay? One that'll make sure you have opening tickets to Star Wars, all right? I didn't mean to put a plug in there, but if you haven't gotten your tickets, go downstairs and get them if they have any left, all right? But I like stepping into a film like that. We don't go to a whole lot. Jane and I have been to maybe four or five. Here's the thing about Jane. She could go the rest of her life with never watching another movie. Like, she, she just doesn't care. We were watching The Hobbit one time, and we were in the second Hobbit movie. There's like ten of them. So, you know, if you're not into it, you wouldn't understand. But she's in the second one. And the whole time I'm watching, I'm just engaged. And she's just like, what's happening? Um, who is that character? Uh, why does he have that hair on his feet? That is gross. Tell him to cut that, trim that. He needs to go to a pedicure. I mean, that is just nasty. What's up with those dudes with the pointy ears? Like, that's not even believable. And um, that guy has no way he'd do that. That's just how she is in the movie. She has no suspension of belief. She can't do it. When you watch a, a fiction film, it's your ability to suspend your belief. So you have to suspend it to enjoy the film. And so she can't do it. So it's got to be um, something that is just like a documentary or something like that. But every once in a while, she'll, she'll go with me. She will suffer, and she will go with me. And so we'll sit in those films, and it's just surround sound everywhere. And, I mean, it's just a great experience. But have you ever thought about sometimes in life it seems like sorrows surround you? Like that surround sound? Like you're going to a movie and the sound is like behind you, comes around you. I've been in theaters where it's like they've got stereo systems in the seats. And some of you, you're like, yeah, like that's life for me. Like everywhere I look, it just seems like. There's another attack. There's another trial. There's another setback. I mean, it doesn't matter if I look up, down, left, right, behind me, in front of me. It's coming from me, and it's got me surrounded this morning how do i deal with struggles and things that just surround my life how do i how do i handle that and we're going to go to the book of job chapter 19 and notice what job says i'm going to i'm going to basically read this whole chapter i know i only put a few verses in with you but you need to get a, a clear backdrop and in chapter 19 basically what job does for those of you that you're jumping in the series he is going to take Take us on a a look back at the last 19 chapters, basically, of his life. And I want to begin reading verse number one. But can we stand and uh, honor and respect for the word of God as we kind of look at this? And I promise we won't have you standing too long. Verse number one says, Then Job answered and said, His friends have been um, not the best comforters. And so here's what Job says to his friends. He says, How long will you vex my soul? and break me in pieces with your words. Now, hold on for a second. Job has lost everything. He had 10 children. They're dead. He had wealth. That's gone. He had um, influence. He was the greatest man in the East, is what Scripture says. The greatest man in the East. That's all gone. He is now outside of the city on the trash heap where they burn trash, and his three friends come to visit him to comfort him as he's in mourning. But these three friends had nothing good to say. They said things like, well, your children had hidden sin. That's why God killed them, and they just didn't confess it. They're just rebellious. You just need to accept it, and you probably have a hidden sin. That's why God's judging you like this. Great help, right? When you've lost everything, real good friends. Time to get some new friends. And verse number three, it says, these ten times have you reproached me. So imagine you're in the worst trial of your life, and they don't just come once and twice to kind of rebuke you. Ten times. These guys are just belligerent, just won't stop. You've reproached me. Are you not ashamed that you make yourself strange to me and be in it and and be it indeed that I have erred, mine error remaineth within myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and plead against my reproach, know now that God hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with his net. He, remember how we said we're surrounded? He said, I feel compassed. I feel like on every side I'm in a net. Verse number seven, behold, I cry out of wrong, but I am not hurt. I cry aloud, but there is no judgment. He hath fenced up my way that I cannot pass, and He hath set darkness in my paths. He hath stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He's talking about His influence, and in verse number ten, He hath destroyed me on every side, surrounded by suffering. And I am gone, and mine hope hath He removed like a tree. He hath also kindled his wrath against me, and he counted me unto him as one of his enemies. His troop came against me and raised up their way against me, and encamped round about my tabernacle. He hath put my brethren far from me, and mine acquaintances are verily estranged from me. He says, my kinsfolk have failed. My family fr- my familiar friends have forgotten me. They that dwell in my house and my maids count me for a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I called my servant and he gave me no answer. I entreated him with my mouth. My breath is strange to my wife, though I entreat for the children's sake of mine own body. Yea, young children despise me. I arose and they spake against me. All my inward friends abhorred me. And they whom I loved are turned against me. He says in verse number 20, my bone cleave to my skin, to my flesh, and I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. You ever heard that phrase, by the skin of my teeth? Here's where we got that phrase. But I need you to understand something. He's basically saying, I don't know how I'm still alive. All these terrible things that have happened, how am I still living? How am I still breathing? And then he has this amazing Amazing declaration. He says in verse 21, Have pity upon me, have pity upon me, O you my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Why do you persecute me as God? Are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh that my words were now written. Oh that they were printed in a book. Hey, guess what, Job? They are. That they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. And he says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use this message. I pray that you would anoint the next few minutes that we have together. I pray that you remove distraction, remove irritation. I pray that we'd focus in not on my words, but on your word your holy scriptures. I pray that it would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would meet needs here this morning. Your word is quick. It's powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. And I pray that it would do a work that I cannot do. I pray that your spirit would meet with us. Nothing that I say will be of any use, of any help, have any weight or power unless your Holy Spirit works on our behalf. We love you and we pray that you would do a great work in and among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you sit, you you need to find five people and give them a high five. You need to find five people and give them a high five. High five. Five people. You can't just sit down. Five people. Get to know their name. Say hello. Say good morning. You got an extra hour of sleep, so we should be in a great mood this morning. It is fallback Sunday, so we got that extra hour and give high fives to people say I feel good I got that extra hour I got that energy I got a coffee a donut whatever you need to get going this morning all right fantastic it's San Jose we like coffee around here and so I hope you don't mind if I take a sip I found out this, and and uh, uh, Chris will really appreciate this. She'll say why? I found a Clover coffee machine by my house. God is good. God is good. If you don't know what Clover is, you have to talk to Chris. He introduced me to it, and there's no going back. It's it, it's it's my new meth. It's like I'm hooked on it. Okay, so I, I have an addiction. All right, I got to go to therapy, but uh, it's good stuff. All right, I found it by my house, and uh, so I just got it with me. When sorrows surround, like surround sound. When it just keeps coming. The apostle Paul was in a Roman prison. We went through the book of Philippians. And he was talking about how a friend was coming to visit him to bring help and comfort to him. And while Paul was in this prison, he writes that this friend that was coming to bring him food, to bring him some uh, uh, clothing, to bring some things to him, he, this friend fell deathly ill. And the apostle Paul wrote, I feel sorrow upon sorrow. And what that means, it's like the sorrow just keeps coming like one wave after another. If you look at the ocean, the waves never stop, do they? They just keep coming. I mean, some are big, some are small. Some of you have been out there and you've been hit by a rogue wave. There's things that you just can't turn your, your back on a wave. And there's just some rules of the beach. You just never turn your back on a wave. You watch your children. You don't feed the uh, birds and you never wear a Speedo, guys. Just You just don't do it, all right? And if you're one of those guys, stop it, please. For the rest of us, we have to go to the beach too. Nobody want to see that, all right? So... Don't you love that mental image? You're like, Pastor, I was on a good morning. Why do you got to do that to me? But I just want to help. Just being a blessing. Thought I'd throw that out there. But Paul said, I got this sorrow. So there is authors in scripture that said, Hey, I've been through these moments where it just seems like it's coming after me. And we as believers, we feel that same tension too. Where it just seems like, Lord, I'm, I'm saying uncle here. How much can I take? It just kind of seems like with the job, is not going well. Seems like things with the kids. Seems like things with my friends, with my family. The holidays are coming up, and some of you, are, you're, you're lo- not looking forward to the holidays. There's somebody that you've lost. or something that's changed. And so the holidays for you, they're not looking so great this year. And so you're just trying to mentally and emotionally prepare yourself for what's coming ahead. And you're saying, I don't know if I can really handle all that's coming my way. And so I need all the help that I can get this morning. Because I do feel like the sorrow has surrounded me like surround sound. Like it just won't quit. It just won't stop. It just keeps coming. So what do I do? And for many people, we've said this. We've said, for some of you say, no, life is great, pastor. Man, I'm having the best time of my life. Can I say this? The worst time to train for a trial is while you're in it. I don't know if you know a marathon runner, but I've met a couple people that they say, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go run a marathon. And they start preparing by eating Krispy Kreme donuts. Yeah, this is how I prepare. You're not going to do too well in that marathon. No, no, this is not going to go well for you. There is no way you're going to pass that, what is it, 23 miles or something like that. It's this ridiculous number, and it might be more than that, I don't know. But there's no uh, saying, oh, I'm going to go run this marathon next week and not prepare for it. You've got to spend hours of practice conditioning your body, getting used to not necessarily the extreme distance, but mentally when your bones and your joints, your muscles just hurt and ache, and you just want to collapse where you just say, I'm just going to keep on Going. You have to condition, you have to prepare yourself for that. And that's why there are Christians who go through immense trials, but yet you still see them at church. And you're like, how, how do you do that? Because you're saying, I, I prepared for this trial. And I was in church before this trial hit me. And that's where I prepared. If you were here in the early part of that worship service, you were just like William Truden and Tr- Truebridge, who said, You know what? I'm going down deep, so I got to bring as much with me. And so on Sundays, we prepare, we take in as much as we can get for the week. So when the trial, when the setback comes, we're not surprised by suffering. I meet too many Christians who they're surprised by suffering. It's not, it, Jesus told us in this world, ye shall have tribulation. So don't be surprised by it. So this series, if you're not going through something right now, God bless you. I'm excited for you. I'm happy for you. But I would take copious notes. I would jot these things down. I would highlight the book of Job. I would hide these things in my heart. I would memorize these verses. And I would say, when something bad happens, this is where I go to. Not to Hennessy. This is where I go to. Not to Grey Goose. This is where I go to. Not that old relationship. This is where I go to. Not my old drug dealer. This is where I'm going to go. This is where I'm going to plant my anchor. This is where I find my firm foundation, and it's in God's Word. And so we are training for trials, folks. Just like you go to the gym and you are training, you are getting in shape this morning, this series. This is going to be twofold. It'll help you if you're in the middle of a trial, and this will also help you if you're training for a trial. But what I often find is that people go through a trial, they don't necessarily know what to do. And so I need you to write this down. We need to learn through loss. We need to learn through loss. If you're going to suffer loss, there needs to be something that we're taking out of this. Don't let the devil just say, yep, you're going through it. You're losing. And you just say, I know it's terrible. I can't believe I'm going through this. What are you learning through this? Because if you've got to suffer loss, there's got to be something you pull away from this. Because I meet too many people and they just think, man, I'm just in this trial. You need to understand something. God entrusted you with that trial. You say, what? God did this to me? God took my job? Yeah, because he knows you can handle it. He knows there's something in you that he wants to do. And he says, you know what? This is a chosen servant. Didn't When you go back and read Job chapter number one, do it as your homework this week. Job wasn't a bad guy. Job wasn't the guy out of church. Job wasn't the guy who wasn't in fellowship with God. Job wasn't the guy who's cheating on his wife. Job wasn't the guy getting wasted. Job wasn't the guy shooting up heroin. Job wasn't the guy robbing banks and riding off on his camel. That was not Job. Job is the guy that was doing right. And God says to Satan, hast thou not considered my servant Job? So we need to say, hey, what am I going to learn through this? I'm not just going to go through this trial and miss out. But first thing, I remember in chapter 2 when his wife came to him. Hey, why don't you just curse God and Job? Curse God and die, Job. What did Job say? You speak as a foolish woman. Shall not God also give us good? And on the other side, won't bad things happen? It rains on the just and the unjust. Don't choose permanent solutions to temporary problems. I mean, too many people, they choose Temp- they choose permanent solutions to temporary problems. You say, what do you mean? Biggest one right now is teen suicide. I mean, come on. You guys read the newspaper. You guys see the news. You get how many teens are committing suicide because somebody wrote a nasty thing on their Facebook page. Or they sent them a nasty picture on Snapchat. And they just think their life is ruined. And they're making a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But I don't just see it with teenagers. I also see it with adults. They say, I'm going to quit that job. I'm too good for that boss. I'm just done. Wait a minute. Don't choose a permanent solution to a temporary problem. What you're going through, you're going through. Remember that? Through and through. What you're going through, you're going through. You're not here to stay. You're not here to camp out. You're not here to build a house. You're going to get through this. You're going to make it through. The church is here to help you and pray for you, encourage you, and cheer you on. My wife and I were at the gym uh, Friday night, and there was a new guy. He was there, and he was doing the weights, and we were all done. Everybody was done. But when somebody's still going, we all surround him. Everybody, you just surround him. And you make fun of him. No, that's not what you do. The whole time. Come on. The guy's name was Chris. Come on, Chris. You got this. Come on. You can do it. Come on. One more. One more. Everybody's just cheering him on. From the guy who finished first to the person that had just finished, we surround him and we just cheer him on. You can do it. You can do it. And that's what the church does. When we hear you're going through something, we don't kick you while you're down. Maybe another church will, but not at Southridge. At this church, we're like, hey, I heard you're going through something. Let me know if you need a meal. Let me know if you need a talk. Let me know if you need coffee. Let me know if you need to borrow somebody else's money or something. I'll talk to him for you or something. You know, we're there for you, man. I mean, we want to encourage you. So don't choose a permanent solution to a temporary problem because what you're going through, it is temporary. And I know that seems very hard because some of you are going through some deep trials in your life. And you just see, when's it ever going to end? Not only that, another lesson you need to learn. Stop beating yourself up because Jesus took that beating for you for you. A lot of people, you beat yourself up way too much. You are way too hard on yourself. Okay? Satan is your number one enemy. He is constantly after you. So don't do his job for him. Please, don't. Don't let those thoughts in that are constantly beating you down and constantly pulling you down, those negative, terrible thoughts. And we all have them. I talked to a psychiatrist, and we were talking about that movie Pixar, Inside Out. And he said, you don't realize this, Micaiah, but that movie is so accurate because we all have a bunch of voices inside of our heads. And they're all talking, and they're all communicating. And what happens is you and I, when we do something wrong, we just go to the worst one. We just go to the one that just says the worst thing about us, and we just start role-playing that over and over. So stop beating yourself up. The book of Isaiah, it says he had borne our, our 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 stripes, and by his stripes we are healed. He took our punishment. Jesus took that beating for you. So stop beating yourself up about it. It's in the past, so get past your past. But too many times what we do is we just, man, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I let that thing happen. I can't believe that happened in my life. can't believe I messed up on that day. can't believe I said that can't believe i i went there but don't let that beat you up it's covered by the blood confess it and move on jesus christ says hey you are forgiven i took that punishment for you on the cross by His stripes we're healed and so we need to understand that i don't need to beat myself up so the lesson you need to learn is hey when i'm going through something and maybe i do mess up because sometimes we do reap what we sow and sometimes there are things that we brought on ourselves But you know what? We can at least step back and say there is a gracious and merciful God who doesn't want me to keep beating myself up about this. Doesn't want me kicking myself or hurting myself or cutting myself. He wants me to live in victory. Also, never trade what you do know for what you don't know. You say, what do you mean? Stop playing the what if game with yourself. I see way too many people doing it. Well, what if we had gotten there sooner? Maybe we could have stopped it. Or, or or what if I was just five minutes late? I wouldn't have gotten in that accident. Or what if I just didn't go to that place alone? That thing never would have happened to me. They never would have done that to me. My life would never have been scarred like that. And some of you keep playing that what if game and your mind is going crazy on you and you're just thinking all these terrible things, but the problem is you can't change it. You can't go back. So don't trade what you do know for what you don't know. What do you know right here and right now? You do know that God forgives. You do know that God heals. You do know that God loves you, that God cares, and he doesn't want you to constantly be playing the what if game because if you're constantly living the past, you never move on into the present future that. God has for you so you need to constantly be saying I'm not going to play that what if game because you and I we live on the promises not on explanations because we all like to say well why God why did you do that what what about this we live on the promise and Job is going to state some promises and we're going to look at those promises this morning so there are lessons that we learn through the loss but then I want you to see something Here is Job, and he's gone through the greatest trial of his life, and he is hurting, and his friends are of no comfort. Everywhere he tries to get comfort. He tries to go to his wife. He said, I tried to go to my wife, and she was like a stranger. He said, I tried to talk to my own servants, and they ignored me. He said, my friends, they reproached me. He said, I have nobody. But then he makes this powerful declaration, and you need to see it in verse number 25. And this is something, if you have not underlined it, if you have not circled it, if you have not highlighted it, if you have not put a stamp and a mark and said, this is my verse, do it this morning, underline it. He said, for, the, for, the, for I know that my Redeemer lives. You say, what is that? They say, scholars say that Job is the oldest book of the Bible. Many of you, the book of Job is just before Psalms and Proverbs, and it's kind of right in the middle of your Bible. So oftentimes we assume that's kind of the chronological order of the book of Job. Historians say Job is actually dated much older than the book of Genesis. It's the oldest book we have. You say, where are you going with this, preacher? What I'm trying to say is he's talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is what we would call our kinsman redeemer, the one who is going to pay the ultimate price for your sin and my sin. But here is Job long before the book of Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis. Long before that, he is writing about a Jesus who is going to die on a cross for his sins. It's a prophecy. It's a foretelling of future events. And here he is making a promise. He is finding, can I use the word, hope when it hurts. And that's powerful. Because when it hurts, you need to find hope. Because without hope, You can't make it matter of fact, the great theologian President Snow in Hunger Games said, hope is the only thing more powerful than fear. I heard that I haven't seen any of the movies, but I saw that and I was like, wow, that is really true. Hope is the only thing more powerful than your fear and my fear. So when we hurt, we need to find hope. But even though we find hope, it's still going to hurt. But we have something to hold on to. We need that hope to endure, that hope to keep going. And here Job said, hey, my hope is in the Redeemer that lives. He says he's not going to be born on Christmas Day in such and such a town. He's not just hoping. He's saying, no, no, no. He already lives. And he's seated in the throne room of heaven. He is alive and he is well. And you and I need to find hope in a living Savior this morning. That's where we need to find our hope. But I love that word he says for I know. He says I know. You know that Hebrew word there that I know is the word yada. I need you to turn to your neighbor and say yada, yada, yada. Yada, yada, yada. Yada, yada, yada. Some of you have said it. Megan said it. We'll say, hey, Megan, go clean your room. Yada, 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 yada. And I'm like, that's Hebrew. You know Hebrew. Shalom uh, or something. I don't know. he has got it. You know, all of a sudden she's going to have the hat and everything. And, you know, uh, muzzle top, you know. Um, so she understands. You say, where did we get that? We got it, It's Hebrew. It means I know. He's saying, but this type of no. It's a scene. It's it's so hard to explain. It's like there's something That you've never seen, but you know it's there. How many have ever actually seen your own brain? We haven't, but you know it's there, correct? Why? I mean, seeing is believing though, right? You say, well, if I were to go in through a special scan, they would scan, they would see all the brain activity, and without a brain, I wouldn't be here. And even though somebody's told me I don't have a brain, it really is up there. It may not be as big as other people's brain, but my brain is up there, even though we haven't seen it. That's where we have that word yada. It means I am so confident. It's like I've seen something, even though I haven't seen it. He said, I've never seen the Savior, but I am so confident that he exists. It's almost like I have seen him. That's a deep hope, is it not? That's what he's saying. That's the message that he's trying to communicate to his friends. That's what he's trying to say to himself. That's what he's going through. That's what he's experiencing. So when you are surrounded by sorrow like surround sound, that's the time where you say, hey, I'm hurting, but I am going to hurt with hope this morning. And so we understand that, in that here Job said, I know, yada, yada, yada. I know that he lives. And the Redeemer was something special. We see this redeemer picture throughout the Old Testament. It's a very Old Testament picture about Jesus Christ. Because what would happen was you would have what would, they would call a kinsman redeemer. It was always a relative that would come. And if you had passed off the scene, they could buy back family land. They could go and restore somebody who had been wrongfully imprisoned. They could go and bring revenge to somebody in their family who had been wrongly hurt. And so here the here Job is saying, I know my redeemer. I know my kinsman redeemer. Redeemer. He's saying kinsman. He's calling Jesus family. He's saying the one that I have a relationship with. I am a part of the family of God. If you've trusted Jesus Christ with your heart and soul, then you are part of the family of God. And you can say, God, Jesus is my kinsman, Redeemer. And the role of that redeemer was threefold. It was one where he could revenge, he could reclaim, and he could redeem. And he said, My Redeemer lives. So when I see this word, that word revenge, that means Jesus has your back. You said, what do you mean? Jesus has your back. I was walking into church, and we were just goofing off, and I was talking to Dave Osuna, and he was saying, hey, people treating you nice. I said, everybody but Jane. And then as soon as we were the corner, there's Jane, and he says, hey, the uh, pastor's been talking bad about you. I was like, oh, man. And I was like, yeah, you had my back to stab it. That's what you had. And we were just messing around, but I need you to understand something. Jesus has your back. Jesus watching over you with eyes that never sleep, with hands that never tire, with a spirit that constantly is watchful. The eyes of the Lord, the Bible says, run to and fro. He's constantly looking out for you. You are the apple of his eye. He loves you. He cares about you. He has your back. He has your back if things go wrong. He's there to revenge. He's there to take care of you because you are his child. You see... God came, what I like to say, to free us from what frightens us. Because when you know that Jesus is there, you're not afraid. Come on, it was Halloween yesterday, and some of you, you like to be scared. I hate it. I think it's dumb, and I just have no fun, unless I get to scare you. Then it's a lot of fun. But if you're out there to scare me, it's not very much fun. But some of you, you know somebody's in the closet, or you know somebody's in the hallway to scare you, and you're like, okay, should I act afraid, or should I like, open the closet before they jump out and scare them. I mean, all these thoughts go through your mind, but you are no longer fearful. Why? Because you already know. You know that, hey, that's what they're that. They're going to come, so I'm ready for them, and they can't get the jump on me. And here Jesus is saying, hey, have a confidence that I'm ready. So you don't need to be afraid of what frightens you. You don't need to be afraid of the future, afraid of circumstances, because Jesus is there as a kinsman redeemer. Not only that, Jesus not only has our back, Jesus will bring us back. You say, what do you mean? It means to reclaim. You say, what do you mean reclaim? The best picture of this is in Luke chapter number 15 where we see the prodigal son and where we see him go uh, off into his own, what happens? He comes back to the Father, and the Father welcomes him back and pays his debt, puts a ring on his finger, and he says, it's okay, come home, my child. Jesus Christ, on the cross, paid your debt. He paid my debt. He reclaimed us. He bought us back. The best word for it, and I love it, is the word redeemed. He not only will bring us back, but he has brought us back, that redeeming work of Jesus Christ. My Redeemer lives, and many of of us, I know we're facing uh, uh terrible things, but the worst thing I think a lot of us face is that horrible thought of one day we're gonna have to face death. And some of us have faced it before. And some of us, that's something that's looming on our future, and we're like, I don't want to ever face that. I don't want to ever talk about death. It seems like such a, a horrible thing. It seems like such an awful thing. I don't want to wanna have to deal with death. But I need you to understand that death is not the end of the road, it's the Bend of the road. Death is not a downgrade, but an upgrade. You say, how do we know that? Because in 2 Timothy 1:10, the Bible says, But it is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He destroyed death. What have you done today? It's kind of like Jesus is like, gangster, man, I just took out death. But you say, what What's so interesting, how Jesus killed death. You say, how did he take care of death? By dying. Doesn't seem so counterintuitive. That seems like if you're going to destroy death, wouldn't you need light and love and life? And and that's what you would need to kill love. And Jesus said, no, 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 I'm going to do what you think isn't going to work. I'm going to go the opposite route. I am going to allow myself to die. And that's how I'm going to defeat death. So what Jesus did, he took the bullets out of Satan's gun and said, you can try and fire it, but you're going to be firing blanks because I took the penalty of death. I took the sting. Grave, where is your sting? Death? where is your power? You are powerless. So some of you that are afraid of death or afraid of losing a child, I need you to look at death totally differently because Jesus said, I conquered it. I defeated it. So I don't have to look at death as a downgrade. Why is it that we look at earth as real and heaven as surreal when it should be the other way around? Because heaven is so real that we need to see that picture that it's a wonderful place. But for too long you and I have the picture of heaven with puffy clouds and chubby white babies and little harps and we're thinking, I don't want to be sitting on puffy clouds and be a chubby baby in heaven that would be awful like that's the worst kind of heaven that's not heaven that's the other place it's just without fire and it's like i don't want to be that playing a harp i mean you're like i'm i don't want to go back to being chubby i want a perfect body you know that's what i'm looking forward to but the apostle paul he says it's like paradise now, the word paradise, you and I, we read it, and we think, oh, that's great, Bora Bora, Hawaii, that's fantastic. But what he was talking about, paradise, that was the best word he could use. And back then, he was speaking about a palace garden. He's saying, this is the best word that I've got for it. The Apostle Paul, he says, been there, as Scripture says, but he's so humble. He says, you know what, I know a guy, and in the, uh, whether in the body or out of the body, he went to heaven and he saw it. It was actually the Apostle Paul who had gotten to see a picture of the third heaven hashtag humble brag you know like hashtag goals like man that's pretty awesome this guy got to do all these things and he saw and he gives this picture for us so you and i we can't we can if we've lost somebody if we're afraid of losing somebody we need to have a different view of heaven because we have a hope that is steadfast and sure like an anchor that holds us and we are rooted but some of you you're You're still looking at heaven and you're saying, I don't want to lose anybody. Or if you've lost somebody, you say, I don't know how to properly deal with that. And you mourn for them. And the Bible does say, mourn with those that mourn. That is true. But imagine this for a different spin on it. Imagine you go to Disneyland. And you've been in those lines. And it seems like whenever I go, the lines are incredibly long. And when anybody else goes, they were like, oh, yeah, the line was like five minutes to see Mickey Mouse. And he was just right there to greet me. He took my child's hand. He played with him for an hour. It was awesome. He invited us over. It was fun. We're going to be in the next cartoon. What did you do? I'm like, yeah, I was in line and the sign. It doesn't help. You will get to ride this ride in three months. Thank you, Disneyland. Oh, right. You know, that's me. But imagine if one of the uh, uh, workers or imagine the CEO of Disneyland comes over to you and says, hey, I'm going to give you a special guest pass. I want to escort you to the front of the line. And they grab your hand and they take you to the front of the line so that you don't have to wait three months and you get to go on that line. Does everybody in the line say, oh, man, that stinks to be you. You got to go first. That just must be a terrible thing. Or do they go, ooh, lucky. So when God calls people home early why do we go stinks to be you and why aren't we saying ooh lucky Mm -hmm. you got to go home. No more pain. No more suffering. None of that. Now in heaven there's no time or space. We're not limited by time. And so you've Seen loved ones go on ahead of you. But since there's no time and space, they you say, they left before me. But I think it'd be neat to think the thought that, I bet we're all going to get there at the same time. You say, why? Because there's no time and space. So it can, we all just got here. You say, well, I want, I want them waiting for me. And wow, we wow, we all got here together. We're here. And let's stop looking at heaven as this place that kind of seems like, oh, man, heaven. You see, because you know what happens? You and I start living fearful lives. We lose our courage to witness. We stop living bold. We stop living passionate. We stop telling people about a wonderful Jesus and a Savior who died on the cross for our sins. Instead, we get passive, and we think that heaven is just some legend. It's just some place, and we don't understand that it's real. And if heaven is just as vivid, just as tangible, just as real, then I'm afraid to say, but it is absolutely true that heaven is just as real, just as vivid, and just as terrible. And we have a job to do. Every member of this church is a missionary. You say, a missionary to who? A missionary to that coworker who doesn't know Jesus. A missionary to that neighbor to tell them about Jesus Christ. A missionary to your friends. A missionary to your family. You say, my family just dropped in and we're not going to church today. You say, no, no, we're going to church because I'm a missionary in this family and this is what we do. I'm going to bring you to Jesus. Some of you tell the pastor, oh, you need to pray for my family that they would get Jesus, that Jesus would change their life. And I'm saying, you are the missionary. I'm not omnipresent. I can't be everywhere. But God puts you in that job. He puts puts you in that influential spot. He puts you on that seat on that airplane. He puts you in that taxi car. He puts you on that subway. He puts you on that train next to that co-worker. It's not random. It's not an accident. God has a purpose. He has a plan, and God wants you to witness and tell people about him, because that is our hope. Our hope is not in our 401k. Our hope is not in our bank account. Our hope is not in our skill. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, the Redeemer that lives. He lives this morning, and put your hand together and clap about that. Because we serve a risen Savior. A Savior who died. You say, well, how can I have that gift? I'm here and I, and, and, and I want eternal life. I'm going to tell you right now, you don't have enough money to pay for it. You can't afford it. You say, why? Because Jesus went to the cross for you. And Jesus ransomed you. He redeemed you. And imagine when Jesus said, I'm going to pay for the sins of the world. Imagine what they asked Jesus. Jesus, how much money do you have to pay for the sins of the world? There's not enough money to pay for it. I have something more precious. Jesus, what are you going to do? Are you going to mortgage your mansions to pay for the sins of the world? No, I have something more precious than mortgaging my mansions to pay for the sins of the world. Jesus, are you going to sell all your land to take care of the sins of the world? What are you going to pay? No, I have something more precious than more than selling my land to pay for the sins of the world. I have. My precious, spotless, sinless, perfect blood. And that's what I'm going to pay. The sins of the world. And this morning, you can put your faith and trust in your good works and they will fail you. You can put your faith and trust in the money that you give to charities and it will fail you. You can put your faith and trust that you are a good person and you walk little old ladies across the street and you buy Girl Scout and Boy Scout uh, popcorn and the cookies and you can do all those good works and you can go to foreign countries and dig wells and you can be with Doctors Without Borders. And I'm sad to say that if you get to heaven and you never ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior, then you will not be welcomed in because you need to be a part of the family this morning. You say that sounds cruel, that sounds harsh. Jesus said this, John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus didn't say I'm a way, a truth, a life. He says I'm the the only one, the premier one, the one that was sent here to die. Without Christmas, we don't get Easter. We're about to come up on the Christmas season where he came to this earth to die for our sins. And that's what yesterday about a half a dozen to a dozen volunteers showed up and as we passed out candy, they're inviting people to church why? So that they could hear the message of the glorious gospel that Jesus saves. Jesus Jesus saves this morning. And so they were passing out track after track after track and after a thousand tracks had been distributed, we had looked back We said look what God did in just a moment. Look at all those people that maybe reached with the gospel. That's why we're in the theater. That's why we're in the mall. That's why every Sunday we got volunteers who show up at 7.30 and 7 o'clock, who set up for hours, who stay afterward, who work hard. That's why some of you, you've given the offering to keep this work going forward so we can see people saved and baptized and growing. That's why people open up their homes in the middle of the week when they're tired and they're worn out and they serve a hot meal and they pray with you they put their arms around you and they tell you that they love you and that they're here for you that's because they believe that there's a jesus that lives and that he rose again on the cross the third day and that's that hope that we have when we're hurting so don't tell me you don't have a hope this morning we have the greatest hope it's steadfast and sure this morning we have that hope See, we need to look back and say, there are lessons when we lose, but then I can hurt with hope. And then lastly, I want you to see this. Comfort yourselves with courage. You say, what do you mean? I love this because this is the human condition. He says in verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives. That's awesome. That's powerful. What a great, epic declaration. But then he says this. He says, And that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin, worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. He makes this great declaration, but then he says, hey, I'm going to die and worms are going to eat me. And then he says, but with these eyes, I'm going to see God. What? Job, you can't can't be over here and say, my Redeemer lives and shout and praise and wave your arms and get all excited. And then over here say, worms are going to eat me. And then over here, with these eyes, I'm going to see God. And then I thought about it. That's me. That's how my faith works. There are moments when I get into church and I get my hands up and I'm excited and God's doing a work. But then Wednesday or Tuesday, I'm gonna, I don't know if I'm going to make it, God. God. How are we going to pay the bills? How are we going to keep going? How's the church going to keep going? And then on Sunday comes and I get excited again. And man, God is good. He is great. Somebody got saved. It was packed in the theater. It was awesome. But then Tuesday or Wednesday comes. Oh, man, this is going to be a rough week. What's going on? This person needs help. And this person, we got to pray for this person. I got to run over here. Got to do all this extra stuff. God, what's going to go on? And then I get over here, get in my devotions. Oh, God is good. That's how our life works, folks. You say, what do you mean? Some of you in this room feel guilty that you are not always on cloud nine. Okay? Some of you feel guilty that for you, you don't ride unicorns and spit Skittles, and that's just not you, okay? I mean, you have your moments where you're just excited, but then you also have your moments when you're down. And some of you feel like you always need to be up. You see, I told my brothers, and I was talking to my wife, and I said, man, why is it whenever I get stern with people, they think I'm really upset and really mad? And then my brother was like, because you're always up here, man. Like, you're just not nor- You're just up here. Like, triple latte up here. Like, extra shot up here. Like, we can't keep up with you up here. So whenever you drop even just a little bit, for you, that's just not normal. So everybody thinks you're just, like, ticked off, man. And so you just, like, not having to smile. People are like, just, take, just stay away. He's not smiling today. It's a bad day. I'm like, oh, I'm just not smiling. Like, normal people just can't handle that. So you're like, they're just not, you're always up here, so you've got this pattern. And then I'm starting to feel comfortable just being like, hey, you know, it's a good day. I'm just not smiling, but it's still a good day. God is still good. He's still on the throne. Great things are happening. People are getting saved. Lives are being changed. It's still great. And for some of you, you feel guilty because you're not always on the up and up. And I need you to say, when you're down, you need to preach to your problems. I would write that down. When I'm down, I'm going to preach to my problems. Because that's what Job does in this passage. He's not talking to his friends. He's not talking to God. Notice what he does. In one moment, he's saying, my redeemer lives. The next moment, I'm going to die. and Worms are going to eat me. And then the next moment, he says, my eyes are up here, and I will see him again. In verse 26, and though after my skin, worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. The reins meaning, though my heart is crushed within me, I'm still going to see God. You know what he's doing, in Church. He's saying, my feelings don't feel it, but I'm going to declare it because I'm going to psych myself out. Some of you come in here and you say, I just don't feel like worshiping God, and I'm not going to sing, and I'm just going to kind of just wait till I feel it. The problem is, that's not how it works. You need to declare it, and then you'll start to feel it. There are mornings you're going to wake up, and you're like, what's this hollow ache inside of my heart? Why do I just hurt? And it's mornings like that, you open up your word, and you got to find a verse and say, "I, I stand on this. This week, just real honest with you folks, I've been struggling. The last two weeks, I called up some pastor friends, and I honestly had some thoughts of just, I'm just done. I'm done with the church. I'm serious. Last two weeks, I said, I just can't do it anymore. I was about ready to quit. Done. Stuff going on, things happening. And you feel like, well, you just got to put up a good front. That's not the kind of church we are. And I said, God, I really need some help here. And then I came to Isaiah, chapter number 40. It says, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. But it was the previous verse that got me. You say, what do you mean the previous verse? It says, those that lack strength, he gives power. I said, God, that's me. I lack strength. God, I need power. And he said, to the weak, I give strength. And I said, God, I'm going to quit. I'm ready to just walk out. It's been 19 months, Lord. I'm doing my best here. And I'm just ready to throw in the towel. Walk out. And then I said, but God, if this verse is true, And so all week, I open up that verse, and I say it out loud. I say, God, this is not a principle. It's a promise that, God, there is power available. There is strength available. And I'll be honest, I don't always feel it. And if you wanted to get real honest, ask Jane. She'll tell you, no, he hasn't been feeling it. But I get up, and I declare it. And you know what I do? I just take another step. I just take another step. Some of you right now are saying, I just don't feel in this marriage. I don't. I want you to find a verse, find a promise, and you just keep stepping. I'm not saying run the marathon. I'm not saying sprint right now because you are hurting. And for some of you, you're, you're, you're having to limp along. And so you take that strength that is found not in yourself because it's not there anymore. You come to the end of yourself. There is nothing left in the tank. You are just ready to just, just quit. Ready to walk out on the kids, family, the husband, the job, everything. And you're going to get in your car and you're going to drive until the gas runs out and say, I'm starting over here. If I get 300 miles down the road, I get 300 miles down the road and I start over. Done. And it's at those moments that you say, God, I need a promise from you. And you open up that word and you say, This is my promise. And Lord, I can't read 10 chapters today. I don't have the strength to read 10 chapters. I got the strength to find one promise in your word. And I'm going to hang on to that like an anchor in the storm where it seems like this ship is going down. And this is my anchor in the midst of these trials, in the midst of suffering, where it seems like Satan himself is attacking me. This is what I hang on to. And that's how we make it when we're surrounded by sorrow. You need to find comfort in that courage. Here's the thing. People think that there's courageous people and not courageous people. No. Courage is something that you decide. It's not something you have. There's a great old movie. I don't know if you ever saw it. but It's called We Bought a Zoo. It didn't do super well, but the screenplay was incredible. The script was awesome. But there's one line in that movie, Matt Damon has lost his wife, and it's based on a true story that actually happened in London where they bought a piece of property not knowing that there was a zoo on the property. And they discovered this zoo with actual lions and elephants and giraffes. And they were saying, what what did we just get? Because the real estate agents just wanted to get rid of it, just sold it. But in the screenplay, and I don't know if this part is true, but it makes for great movies. He's talking to his son, and he was talking about how he met his wife and how they dated and how they got married. And he told his son who was going through something. He said, son, I learned a secret. I just have to have 20 seconds of courage. I just need 20 seconds of courage. He said, I saw her. She was way out of my league. She was way too good good for me. But I knew it for 20 seconds. I just need courage to ask her on a date. I see 20 seconds of courage. I'm going to tell you what. You say, I can't go and see that boss anymore. I'm just done. I can't face this problem anymore. I want to say something. You just need 20 seconds of courage. You say, I've got to take care of this relationship. It is not what it ought to be. You need 20 seconds of courage. You say, i got to fix this thing in our family. You need 20 seconds of courage. I've got to face my child. They're not living for God. They're not doing right, and they're under my roof, and I need to address it, and I'm scared too. You need 20 seconds of courage. You say, i got this situation where I need to witness this coworker because I don't know if I'm going to get another chance, and I've been putting it off, and I've been putting it off, and God's been pricking my heart about telling them about Jesus Christ. You need 20 seconds of courage this morning. And you say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to witness this person. It's going to take 20 seconds. It's the hardest thing when people ask me what I do, because immediately it's like they go, oh, snap, <laughs> you know, you're a pastor. Oh. Because here's what they're thinking. They're like, you're normal. We were having a good conversation, but that's ruined. Like I would have hung out with you. We would have been buddies. But now that you're a pastor, no, you're probably going to be telling God about what I'm doing, about smoking, what I'm drinking. I mean, this is, you know, I just can't have friends that are pastors. I mean, you're a cool dude and everything, but it just ain't going down. There's always that awkward, and I'm like, so now I just probably say, hey, I'm going to tell you what I do, but don't freak out. And then they really freak out. It's kind of funny. Like, is this dude like a hitman or something? What does he do, you know? And then I tell him a pastor, and they're like, I'm glad you told me not to freak out because that could have been a little bit awkward. I'm like, I don't know how else to say it, man. I really don't. But you need that 20 seconds of courage as we wrap things up. As you're surrounded by these sorrows, as you're faced with such incredible difficulties, how are you going to manage it? You need to learn from the loss, hope with hurt, but then find comfort in that courage, with that 20 seconds of courage. You see, God, he doesn't tell you his plan, but I need you to do something this morning. I need you to write down in your Bible somewhere permanent that God doesn't tell me his plan. All that I need to know is that he has a plan. That's it. And if we as a church can embrace that, that I don't need to know God's plan. And trust me, we're planners. You live in the Silicon Valley. I mean, we plan. And if you don't plan, you're homeless. I mean, it's just not going to be good. And so here it is. We plan, we work, but we need to step back and say, God, I'm going to trust your plan. Let's all stand as we wrap up this service.